at the time, you know, I was in law school, I was spending hours and hours reading hundreds of pages of dry case law. So to leave class and be in a room where it's like, we're all kittens, was a lot of fun and a much needed change. Welcome to Improv Interviews with Margot Escott, a psychotherapist in Naples, Florida, who is using her 35 years of experience to develop improvisation programs, benefiting and improving the lives of those with emotional and physical challenges. Improv Interviews brings together the world's leading improvisational theatre masters, founders and innovators who are using improvisation therapeutically in unique and surprising ways. With great guests that include legends like Ed Asner and Aretha Sills, you're sure to learn something new about improvisation. This is Improv Interviews with your host, Margot Escott. Hey, Stephanie. Hello. It's so great to see you today. Oh, thank you. It's great to be here. Well, and I'm so excited to have you here. I think I mentioned to you that I got very inspired when I saw the BIPOC uh, webinar you did a few weeks ago. And can you tell me a little bit more about that group, Stephanie? Sure. So I'm guessing that was probably the Improv Uncolonized panel that I did through the Improv Boost. Um, I wanted to specifically pull together... Uh, Black, Indigenous, and people of color who are leading communities for Black, Indigenous, and people of color improvisers um, to talk about why that's so important and just share some of our experiences and advice as people who are seeking to create spaces specifically for us by us. Is there a website or a Facebook group you have? Yes. So um, most of what I do runs through Black Improv Alliance. You can find us at blackimprovalliance.com or Black Improv Alliance on Facebook and Instagram. We don't have a page or group specifically for Improv Uncolonized yet, although the group chat that we formed to put together the panel has remained and we are looking at doing some more collaboration. So you will definitely be hearing some more from those individuals working together in the future. Oh, that's terrific. So I was looking a bit about your bio, and the first thing I noticed was that you come from outside of Harrisburg. Now, you were born in 1985, I think? Mm -hmm. Yes. So that was about six years after Three Mile Island. And (laughs) was that a topic at all in your family dinner tables or... (laughs) I've always been very fascinated with it, actually. Um, I love stories about superheroes and had like low key uh, aspirations of maybe I'll get, you know, hit by a truck carrying nuclear waste and get superpowers. Uh, that that was the plot of Alex Mack. If people are like, that's a weird thing to say. Uh, it was a show I loved on Nickelodeon. But yeah, I was always very interested in the fact that I lived near a nuclear power plant and at some points was a little bit nervous about it. My mom was like, ah, don't worry. We're right at ground zero. If anything happens, you won't even feel it. We just won't wake up. And I was like, okay, cool. Great. Great. Awesome. Very reassuring, isn't it? Yeah. There's a very old Saturday Night Live clip right after Three Mile Island. I don't know if you ever saw it or not. And um, I forget who was playing Jimmy Carter and somehow he was in there with, I think, Elizabeth Taylor. And I think Bellucci was Taylor. Anyway, long time ago, be- before you were born. Oh, my gosh. Oh. So 
So you grew up in in a little or small small town outside of Harrisburg? Actually, right in Harrisburg. Oh, right in Harrisburg. So mm-hmm. that's a bit of a city, right? I mean, mm, a bit. <laughs> you're over Broward County right now. We're not going to stalk you, but you're. So I'm. I live it. I live in Miami currently. At the moment, I am at my friend Charlotte's house in Orlando, and I'm getting ready to move here in a couple of months. Oh, that's terrific. I wonder if I know that Charlotte. That could be a Charlotte I may know. I think so. Charlotte Brown? Absolutely. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. terrific. Nice. It's good to get away from home, isn't it? Like, yeah, we've both been kind of lonely and isolated in pods of one. So we were like, let's be lonely and isolated together sometimes. So I come escape to Charlotte's place every so often. That's terrific. Well, let me start back when you were a young girl in Harrisburg. And what, did you like to entertain immediately? When did you discover the um, the actor in you? I was always drawn to drama um, on and off the stage. <laughs> I definitely, you know, wanted bigger parts and speaking parts in my school plays was often the narrator, the kind of person pulling things together um, and always just felt comfortable leading group projects and having the spotlight, liked being in charge of things. So, And were you very involved in your church growing up? I was actually, I was, I was pretty involved in church growing up. Um, Not a thing I do so much now. That's a whole story. I don't know if you want to go down that rabbit hole, but yes, growing up, I was involved in church. I did quite a bit of um, drama stuff there when we had someone doing youth things. And then as an adult, I spent about four years working in youth ministry and led the drama program at a pretty big church in Miami. And then you went on to college somewhere, didn't you? I did. I went to Howard University in Washington, D.C. Wonderful. And was it while you were at Howard that you discovered WIT or was it afterwards? It was afterwards, actually. It was um, during my third year of law school at Georgetown. Okay. And you... You graduated from law from law school at Georgetown. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's quite a remarkable feat. Good Thank for you. you. That's a great, great school. I, I visited Washington a, a bunch of times, um, but it's about you. Wait a minute, I'm talking about me again. Okay, so right. so anyway, um, so uh, so during law school, you discovered wit, and how did that come about? What what happened? So every year, the school had an auction. Um, to benefit the social justice programs to provide stipends to students who wanted to do internships with places like the ACLU and other like social justice focused programs um, just to give them like a living stipend since they were traditionally not making the big law firm salaries working at these uh, social justice focused organizations. And so they had different companies contribute items for a silent auction all these proceeds went to this program. And so I was like, okay, you know, I'll check it out. I ended up bidding the minimum bid on everything that had zero bids, just like whatever. If I get something for 10 bucks, I get it. Cool. I don't care. You know, I'm broke, but if I can win something for $5, awesome. So I bid the minimum bid on a certificate for a level one improv class at Washington Improv Theater. I think it was like 10 or $15 that I bid. Nobody else bid and I won it and was like, all right, I have this thing. I guess I'll check it out. And that's how I serendipitously got into improv. 
Oh my gosh, that is a great story, but it was meant to be. I believe these things are meant to be. And so when you got there, did you fall in love immediately or did it take a little while? It was pretty immediate. Um, at the time, you know, I was in law school. I was spending hours and hours reading hundreds of pages of dry case law. So to leave class and be in a room where it's like, we're all kittens was a lot of fun and a much needed change from most of what my life was like. I also had a really amazing teacher. Uh, her name's Karen Lane. She still does all kinds of cool improv and creative stuff. And she just filled that room with so much warmth and joy and laughter. I was the only Black person in the class. I never felt like it. She created such a safe space before safe spaces were like cool and trendy. And taking that class with her, I was just like, I will follow Karen wherever she goes. And that's how I actually got into musical improv, which became the great love of my life. Because the next class she taught was intro to musical. And I was like, all right, well, I'm signing up. And I was in it for life after that. Well, you and me both, I love musical improv. In fact, maybe we'll sing a scene later on because I just love it, love it, love it. Uh, so did you finish law school and did you ever be a lawyer? Did you ever be a lawyer? <laughs> I did finish law school. I did not become a lawyer. Um, so when people say I'm a lawyer, I'm like, nope, not really. Like I'm kind of a fake lawyer. Um, I have my JD. In order to be an actual attorney, I would need to take and pass the bar exam. And I just haven't felt like doing it. Um, I've lived in Florida for the last 10 years. I did intend to take the bar exam when I first graduated, but I ended up moving to Florida. Florida has no reciprocity with their bar exam, which means um, most states, for instance, Pennsylvania and New Jersey, if you practice law in Pennsylvania for, I think, seven years, you don't have to take the bar exam again in order to practice in New Jersey. They're like, okay, you passed Pennsylvania's bar. You've been practicing like, you know what you're doing. You can practice in New Jersey and we just kind of give you credit for your experience. Florida doesn't accept anyone else's bar, so no one else will accept their bar exam. So if I take the bar exam in Florida and then I move, I guaranteed have to take the bar exam wherever I go to in order to practice law there. And I always knew that I didn't want to stay in Florida. I did not intend to be here as long as I've been here. That's a long story. <laughs> but I intended to move two or three years after I got here. So I was like, I'm not taking a bar just to take another bar exam in three years. And then I just never left. And by then I was doing other stuff with my life. So I'm like, mm, the JD doesn't expire. I can go take the bar and be a real attorney at any time. I just haven't wanted to do it yet. <laughs> that is terrific. Florida is the most unreciprocal state in the union. It sucks. I was going to leave. I was going to go back to New York. I was living in New York City before I came down here. Um, 36 years later, I'm still in Florida. <laughs> yeah, it has a way of just sucking you in. Yeah, just like you <laughs> thought you could get out. So, yeah. <laughs> so you mentioned um, that your first improv and musical improv teacher, Karen. Mm -hmm. Karen Lange. Karen Lane uh, provided a safe and supportive environment. When you left studying and went out, can you tell me some of your experiences being in the quote, real improv world? <laughs> oh yeah, it was, it was very different. Um, so after my two classes I took at WIT, I ended up moving to Miami and actually really committed to finding a school to study with and be part of their community and had a really tough time finding an improv home at first. I went to a couple different places and just didn't feel 
warmth anywhere. So um, I ended up going to a show at a place called the Roxy Theater, which I don't think is even open anymore. And um, there was a group of improvisers there who was, it was interesting. It was like not really a school, not really formal, but they did shows and they had a couple pretty experienced people leading. So I kind of got to know them, started doing some practices with them. They had like a training group that I got into. And then after a couple, it was like a couple of months, maybe six to eight months, something, they ended up disbanding completely and were like, but just form your own groups with the people you met. So I was like, uh, okay. So me and another one of the people I had met there ended up forming a troupe um, called Negative Four Months, which was my first like improv group that we formed together and did a lot of on-the-job training about how to run an improv group and how to be in an improv group and read a lot of books and I took a lot of workshops and had a very non-traditional improv education and that a lot of it I just learned by doing it wherever and whenever I could. Did you form when did you form the uh, Black Improv Alliance? That was about two years ago now. So hasn't been around for super duper long, about two years, yeah. So, so before that, did you find sometimes working with other people, they would try to assign you kind of a specific role or character to be? Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, so that happened frequently and still happens in some places, which is why I'm very particular about which spaces I will enter because I just don't have a whole lot of patience for nonsense anymore. Um, but I have certainly had experiences where, you know, I'm playing improv, I'm, I'm playing improv, I'm doing a scene, um, playing with a group of people I don't know and somebody will walk on stage and assign me a very stereotypical name or character that is clearly based only in the fact that I'm the only black person on stage. Um, and I now will just shut that down in the moment, but certainly in the beginning, it felt more like, okay, well, the show has to go on and you have to yes and, so like this sucks, but I just have to deal with it. I don't just deal with it anymore. I tell people about themselves. Uh, but I think that's a pretty common experience for most Black improvisers to have people step out and decide, okay, uh, your Blackness is going to define your character. And actually, that's incorrect. Not even your Blackness. My idea of what your Blackness is, based on movies and TV and whatever other nonsense I've used to build my opinion of what a Black person is like, that's going to inform your character now. That's nonsense. Don't do that folks. Yeah, that sucks. And one of the things I really love about you is that you do speak out and you let your voice be heard. And that's wonderful and courageous and a great example for other people. Thank so you. I saw that you were the group called Society Circus Players. Were you in a circus? <laughs> Something like that. So long story short, the group that I formed negative four months. Um, I put together with another individual. We founded it together. Um, I went home for the summer and we had, you know, talked about the group and what was going on. I let him know I was going home for the summer. When I came back, have you seen the movie, The Social Network, the story of how Facebook was founded? 
Yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> I got Eduardo Savarind. Um, I came back and my co-founder had decided that he was in charge of the group now and created a board of directors, which I was not on and like had done this whole kind of thing to completely take over the group that we had put together and that I had done a lot of work for. And I I at the time was just like, you know what, this is completely absurd. Improv is a hobby. I have a child. I have a whole real life. Like, I'm not going to let this disturb my peace. So this is super crazy. But all right, you want to do this? Fine. You're not going to get my work or effort the way that you did before. I'm going to sit back. I'm going to show up and do what I want to do and absolutely nothing more. So he was a nut. Um, I ended up leaving that group because my work schedule changed, but I already was like not upset about not working with him a whole lot more. While I was gone, everybody else in the group got fed up of dealing with him too and like had a coup of their own basically and were like, so we all want to do improv together, but not with you. So they left and formed a new group with everyone that had been in this team I founded, except for this guy that was a mess. Um, And that is how Society Circus Players was born. So (laughs) once they formed a group that didn't include him, and then my work schedule changed. I was like, all right, I'll go back to improv. So I went back and rejoined the team that was birthed out of the group that I started. And they are still around and, and doing stuff. Yeah. Wow, that's terrific. Now, I say, I saw, sorry, my language, saw that you um, performed at a DCM and uh, the Del Close Marathon. And I was there, I think I was there in 2000 and... 15 maybe oh nice or, or 14 um what years were you there I think it was I want to say 2017 and 2018 I went to the last two before they left New York that's an incredible experience isn't it I just had so much fun yeah and um it's really funny though one person from my background a, um, a friend of my stepson's was an improviser from North Carolina. And when I got to their UCB, it was a long line to get in, right? And all of a sudden somebody calls out Margo and I'm looking around thinking, what? And it was my friend, Phil, and he let me get in line with him so I could get in sooner. Nice. (laughs) And it was really nice. And of course, watching Cats at the end was just so cool. I just love them so much. Yeah. these are really, you got a lot of great. So do you, did you have a day job in the beginning and do you still have one? Oh, I've always had a day job. <laughs> I am just, just now <laughs> starting to make a couple dollars uh, doing improv. This is very new um, to actually be making any income doing this. So yes, a hundred percent. I have always had and still very much have a day job. Um, I co-own a private tutoring company called Easy Learning Academy which specializes mostly in high-end ACT and SAT tutoring. We had large group classes before COVID hit. Um, Now we are completely remote, mostly seeing students one-on-one. And I also do like pretty much reading and writing, high school and above, I do it. So most of my business is SAT and ACT, but college essay, college applications, grad school essays and applications, um, academic essays, like AP, English classes, that sort of thing. I work with students on all that kind of stuff. And I love it. I love words. I love storytelling. My partner is the math guy. So I'm like, oh, if you have a numbers question, 
you need to talk to JC. So it works out really nicely because we get along very well and we don't step on each other's toes. I don't want his side of the business and he doesn't want mine. So it, it works out nicely. Perfect partnership. That is tremendous. And I'm sure you're helping a lot, a lot of kids. I used to teach at a community college and I found that a lot of times kids, when they entered community college, had no language skills at all. They had been passed through the system and they really couldn't do much of anything. Did you find, have you had experiences like that as well? I, I have found that, yes. I have been shocked by how many high school juniors and seniors I have had who don't know how to construct an essay, who like have no idea where to start. And I'm like, how did you get here? Like, how did a teacher not stop you earlier and be like, wait a minute, let's talk about how to write an essay. Um, so I have seen that and have been surprised. I also actually, my other, I have like several jobs. Um, I'm an adjunct English professor at Miami-Dade College. I'm getting ready to start teaching another course this month. And there I teach English, usually for um, adults who are learning English as a second language. And it's been interesting to see um, really just how, how sometimes I find students who are studying English as a second language seem more dedicated to really mastering the rules than students who have known English their entire lives and are still so unfamiliar with some of the technical grammar things. Terrific. I wanted to ask you another question, but wait a minute, I just had a brain thing go on. I won't say brain fart because that doesn't sound very nice. So, um, I'm sure, you're, do you use some improv in your classes when you teach? Yes, actually, um, my favorite class I've taught for Miami-Dade is called Quaintime. It is an advanced English conversation course that was really founded on the principles of improv. So um, my supervisors told me what they wanted, kind of the idea of it, and then gave me carte blanche to design the class using improv fundamentals and modifying games for an educational setting. And it was just really a joy to get to do what I love in a way that was also really helpful and fulfilling for uh, people who wanted to build on their English conversation skills. I just love that so much. And you're also a writer, aren't you? I am. I am a writer. So um, I am not published yet. Publication is the goal. And writing is such a solitary and sometimes thankless exercise that I've struggled lately with the discipline to sit down and just get the words on the page. But I have been writing for a couple years. I have several completed novels. Um, I had a really great sit down with an editor from Putnam at one point who wanted me to revise and send him, send him my pages back. And I didn't because I got scared. Um, but I've had some really good feedback from some publishing professionals. And at this point, I just need to sit down and finish writing my current work in progress so I can send it in and make that happen. That's terrific. Well, when you're ready to publish your first book before you become super famous and they're making a movie out of it and you're the writer in Hollywood, maybe we could do another podcast to talk about the book. That yes, would I would love that. Oh, so nice. Yeah, that would be terrific. So improv is such an important part of my world. I got hooked about, it's almost 10 years now for me. And I have a big library of improv books. 
Um, one of the reasons I started this podcast was to meet and talk to improvisers, some of whom are pretty well known, and get some tips myself. That's how I started this. And I, I, I love a lot of my improv books, but I, and I'm I, actually there's one I really like a lot um, by a fellow named. Uh, oh gosh, I'll, th I'll think of it. But while I think of it, how about you? Do you have any favorite improv, improv books? I don't really have a favorite improv book. I have not been great about really reading the improv books. It's on my list for 2021 to do better at looking at some of those. I definitely have um, people who I know I enjoy following, reading their statuses and the videos they post and looking at the things they recommend, watching their shows, but I haven't gotten deep into the literary world of improv. You're a Second City graduate as well, aren't you? I'm not. Oh, um, not no, I have done some drop-ins and I have some friends who are, but I'm not a second. I'm, I'm not an anybody's program graduate. My improv education has been a hodgepodge of a drop-in here, a drop-in there, studying with this individual who studied with the big name place and is, you know, teaching me a lot of those principles, but I've never done any particular school's level program. Oh, great. That's terrific, I think. I was going to share the book. I was just remembered who wrote. Michael Gelman wrote a book called Process, mm. and this was based on a class that he was having at Second City, and uh, I uh, maybe Conservancy, I'm not sure, but Michael Gelman and I did an interview with him a while back and I love that book. I love Spolin um, and he really describes the exercises and also the process that people are going through as they're learning and they're working with him and, and he's, he's fantasizing on the comments. Maybe they, he wasn't fantasizing, maybe they really made it like this sucks. I don't know what he's doing, blah, blah, blah. And I, it's a very easy to read book, Stephanie, cause it's small and I like those, Ooh. not too big. It's really, I recommend that book heartily. So you're a mom as well. Wow. I am. I am. Um, I have one child. He is nine years old and he has strong opinions about everything. I bet he does. Yeah. That's, that's kind of a full-time job as well. Do you have any family in the, in the Miami area at all? I don't. And it sucks. Um, so that, you know, is one of the things I don't love about Miami. His dad, my ex-husband, uh, does live in Miami, which is why I'm still here, so that his parents are relatively close to one another. Um, so, you know, that helps. We share custody, so I don't have to be solo parent all the time. Um, but yeah, having a nine-year-old is a lot. And I do wish that my family was closer because my mom is really close to him and loves small kids. And that is a resource that would be very helpful if she was easier to get to, especially, you know, now I'm like, it's not even, and it's not even an option. Normally I go home four or five times a year at least, but now I haven't seen my parents since March was the last time. Yeah, that's uh, that kind of segues into talking about how the pandemic has affected you as an improviser and how you've adjusted to Zoom and maybe some of the other platforms that are out there right now, and especially in musical improv. So musical improv has probably been the biggest challenge over Zoom, although I feel like I have found um, some ways to really make it work. 
improv has been the one area that I feel like this pandemic is actually, I hate to ever say that it's a good thing. I guess I would phrase it this way. Improv has been the one area of my life that I feel like has really flourished under these conditions. Um, I've been able to, you know, meet people like you who, who knows how long it would have taken us to connect in person. I've been able to teach and play with improvisers from all over the world. It's been especially powerful for me to be able to connect with so many black improvisers from other places because Miami's improv scene already is not incredibly strong. Uh, but we also do not have a large black improv population here at all. Like I know, I, I feel confident saying I know all of the black people in improv and I can count them on two hands and have fingers left over in, in South Florida, in South Florida. Um, so playing online has allowed us to connect with black improvisers all over the U S and all over the world and really build and have community in a way that was not possible here in person. Well, I agree with you. In fact, I'm playing with the, with extreme improv later on today and they're in nice. London. So it's so wonderful and meeting people in India and China and Japan and it, it's just fantastic. It really is. I, I'd love to know some of the secrets you've got about doing musical improv because a lot of times it's basically just one at a time singing, uh, really challenging to, to harmonize. So things like that, I think. Yeah, I've found the same thing. Honestly, what's been freeing for me has just been giving up the idea of replicating in-person musical improv on Zoom. I have not found it to be possible. Um, so I've just accepted musical improv online is a different beast and you love it or hate it. You got to take it for what it is. So that means a lot of solos, a lot of duets where you've just figured out how to shift focus smoothly. A lot of songs where one person is singing the chorus and everybody else is supporting with choreography and just leaning, leaning into that, accepting it as the format and not, not feeling like it is something that holds us back, but just saying, okay, this is how we do it here. So I think I agree that the pandemic is terrible, but I have been able to, I'm, I'm actually currently being coached by a friend of mutual friend, Jay Suko. And oh, nice. I know, and I'm having withdrawal. He's on vacation this week. Mm. So um, that's for you too, Landon. You can jump in whenever you want, you know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <so>. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> um, so back to um, some more questions. Maybe, maybe you want to ask me a question, Stephanie. Sure. Um, what have you found to be the biggest benefits and biggest drawbacks of online improv? Well, the biggest, biggest improvement, I think, is being able to really talk to other people around the world and being able to access really great teachers who normally I might not be able to afford if it was real time. Yeah. And so it's sad because they're not making the kind of money they were making, but it's good for me because I can afford it. I, I work as a therapist. I spend most of my days on telehealth 
And so it's just such a relief for me. Um, the drawbacks are the lag. I teach a class for people with Parkinson's and some mild dementia improv. And, and the lag is really noticeable there when people start talking over other people. That's one of the most difficult things. And if you're working with people with dementia, you know, it's hard to, should I say, control that. Yeah. Am I answering that question well enough? Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, that actually leads me to a follow-up. How have you found, if, if you found, um, that your improv training has fed into your work as a therapist? Oh, absolutely. From day one, when I took my first improv class, I immediately saw the connection with therapy. And then I saw the connection with 12-step recovery programs, which I'm very involved in. So I went home and I, I thought, oh, this is, I'm going to be unique. I am going to be doing improv as a therapist. And nobody else has ever thought of that. <laughs> well, that bubble was sure shortly burst. I met a woman named Kristen Kruger, who's done amazing research and work in improv, and a fellow named Daniel Weiner, Weiner sorry, uh, who is a PhD, who 30 years ago wrote a book called Rehearsals for Growth Using Improv and Psychotherapy. So uh, it's, it's tremendous. And the application, the principles of improv are such guides for daily living, I think. You know, being able to say yes and adding detail not and not always having to say yes sometimes you know yeah you, you want to change it up a little bit and acceptance of everybody acceptance of people as exactly as they are who they are right now in this time and that's so important for the universe i think and mm -hmm. and listening and that really applies to my work as a therapist as well as when i'm teaching improv so it's i it's just changed my life and if I didn't need my day job, I'd quit it in a heartbeat. <laughs> I hear that. You do hear that, huh? Yeah. Now let's, let's go back to you again. Have you been part of the Vintage Improv Festival? Yes. I uh, taught a workshop with them on using props and costumes in Zoomprov, which was so much fun. So do you plan on doing work with them again? Because I think it's a great group of people. And of course, I'm vintage myself. <laughs> <laughs> yes i i do actually um they've got some incredible stuff coming up for new year's eve all sorts of amazing free workshops and uh, i'm not doing one of those just because i need i need to take a couple days off i need to force myself to take a break uh, but in 2021 i definitely intend to do some more work with them oh that's fabulous i hope to sign up for some that would be tremendous for me or study with you somehow so is it the Black Improv Alliance that is offering uh, to help scholarship Black youth for improv schools? Is that, can you tell me a little bit more about that? Sure. So it's not just youth. It is all Black people. Uh, the Black Improv Alliance put together and coordinates the 100 Black Improvisers Partnership, which is a partnership between us and right now 50 theaters around the world. I think, actually, I think it might be 50. 51 now. I think another one just signed up. Um, so 51 theaters around the world that have pledged scholarships for Black people who want to try out an improv class with the objective being to remove any financial barrier and give Black people the opportunity to walk in and just try a class and see what 
improv is. So the intention here is to really get more Black folks in this community to diversify it. And by having more Black people in improv schools and on stages, when we walk in to see a show, you know, walk out thinking, oh, okay, this this could be for me. This could be a thing I do and not, oh, this is a white people thing. I'm I'm good on it, which happens when you walk into a space and don't see yourself represented. So honestly, it's less even about people who can't afford it, although we, of course, want to encourage those people, but more about the idea that when you don't even know what improv is, you're probably not going to spend $250 on a class where you're not, you know, you're not getting a textbook, you don't have materials, you're kind of normally in a room at this point on a computer, just talking to people and playing make-believe, like, without having experienced it, it's kind of a tough sell. So um, here we remove that obstacle and say, listen, I know it sounds a little crazy. Just try it. You're going to have fun. You're going to walk out uplifted. It's going to relieve stress. It's going to make you more confident. Just try it with the hope that people will walk in, try it and love it and be like, oh, you know what? This is a really cool thing. And I do feel like it's fed my soul and I want to keep doing it and I'm going to stick around and I'm going to pay for the next class and I'm going to be a part of this community or even, you know what, this wasn't exactly for me, but now I understand what it is. And my cousin Sheila would love this. I got to tell her she needs to take an improv class. I'm going to share my experience with other people who might really connect with it in a different way. So we are hoping to raise awareness in the Black community about what improv is and why more people should get into it. So are you looking primarily at classes perhaps that already have a Black teacher um, and uh, would have more than one student or if it, like here in Naples, you know, we're a very white Republican <laughs> uh, county uh, and state. But um, so for example, the theater that I teach at uh, if we reached out into the community, would that be a possibility, even though predominantly our classes are people that are white and, and Latinos? Yeah, absolutely. So we love having classes with Black teachers. There are not a ton of Black teachers in improv, which is another thing that we're hoping to address uh, more directly in 2021. Um but actually, what I, I love what you said about are you going to have just one black person in a class? So part of one of the requirements for our program is that scholarships are offered in a group of five. We aren't always able to find five black students to take a class together, but that's always the objective. So if we can find five people to put together in a group, we will. They'll automatically have a little cohort of black students in the class with them. Sometimes we only have one student or two students for class and we'll let them know, hey, you might be the only black person in this class. Do you still want to take it? Do you have friends that you want to invite that you can bring with you to know you have some other black folks in the room? Um, so we, we give them that option. But the goal is always to create a small group whenever we can. And then part of the program is also that we are there as a support system for theaters. We are there as a virtual community for these students. And we can say, okay, here's when we're having a meetup. Here's when there's an all POC or an all black improviser jam. Here's how you can meet and connect with other black improvisers. You might be the only black person doing improv in your town, but 
we can connect you virtually with some other people to give you this community that you might lack physically. That is so beautiful. I just love it. I'm trying to figure out how I can reach out and I'm already getting ideas in my community. Um, Because I teach you a local theater, but I also teach on my own. So very inspiring. So I I really admire you and I'm so glad we've had this time to talk and to get to know each other better. You're amazing and you're a wonderful improviser, singer. And once I read your work, I'm sure I'm gonna say a terrific writer. Do you do any sketch comedy at all or not? Are you? I do, I have, I enjoy it. It's not a thing that I do regularly. I usually do it if I'm inspired. I did a bunch of sketches when uh, the Black Panther movie came out. So, um, and actually recently, not, not too long ago, took a sketch class with the British improviser that writes for the BBC. That was super enlightening. I just haven't had a reason to do it regularly, but I, I enjoy it and I do it when I'm you know, involved in something that calls for it. I just love that. I need to mute myself sometimes when you're speaking because I don't want to have any background noise at all. You're no just a beautiful woman and a beautiful person. Oh, thank and you. And I am so excited. Um, so I would like to say thank you for your time. Thank you for your energy. And thank you that for what you're doing for people of color and different cultures all over the planet. It's amazing work. And I think, you know, there's only one Stephanie Ray, but we could probably use about a hundred of you. (laughs) Thank you. I want to thank you. And of course, Landon, my engineer of wonderful engineer. And you're welcome. Well, thank (laughs) you. (laughs) And so for now, we're going to say goodbye and uh, and thank you again so much for have being on the show today. And I uh, want to say thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and look forward to you joining us next time on Improv Interviews with Margot Escott. <laughs>